Thanks, Nate Sousa, and uh, thanks, Marty. We are so blessed to have Marty Sweeterman as our pastor of all things wonderful. Um, He is an engineer by training, and that comes through in the way he does things, but he has a phenomenal staff of men and women who love your kids, and uh, each week uh, before the services, when we pray early in the morning uh, for you, for the services, we, uh, I always pray for our learning center, for the children to have a delightful experience over there when they're handed off, that the volunteers will have a great experience, that uh, these children, this is their imprint of what church is from early on. And more importantly than the building and the themes and so forth, is that they meet the person of Jesus Christ. And through all the efforts and labors, you see it ooze out of him. He does it with excellence. He's extraordinarily gifted for it. And we are very blessed to have Marty uh, lead that ministry. So um, thanks to uh, him, thanks to the Lord for using him, and we're delighted to be a part of it. He mentioned several times the word transformation. And this fits in precisely with our passage today. And I want you to ask and answer in your own life experience uh, Believing that many, if not most of you in this room, have come to Christ at some point. You believe that he lived, that he died, that he was buried, and that he came back from the dead. You put your trust in Christ. You believed in him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And in that process, putting your faith in him, you receive a gift called eternal life. And perhaps one of the first things that happens is that you're forgiven of your sins. You're given a clean slate. And then your uh, role in mine is to cooperate with God's Spirit, motivated by His Word, agencyed by His Spirit and His people, to be transformed, to be changed, to be different. And some of us can go back when we were young, and it was a, a pretty powerful conversion. Others maybe came to Christ as I did in my teen years, and it was pretty radical. Some may have had a, it was a intellectual, wasn't emotional, but it was, it was significant to you. Some of you came to Christ as adults. And it might have been dramatic, all points in between. But we could all probably chart back and say there were times we grew exponentially. We were excited. We loved it. We, we dug into the Word. We couldn't wait to hear and to, to be taught and be part of a group. And then we might get apathetic or a little tired or life might crowd out spiritual life a little bit. And most of us probably have had those ups and downs in our Christian experience. So the question before you and me is how are we truly transformed? What does it look like to be conformed more and more into the image of Christ and less and less into the image of our sinful selves? And that is what I want you to think about as we look at this very familiar story in the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bible, I want you to open to Mark 8. We'll be looking primarily at the first 13 verses of Mark 9 today, the transfiguration, and how the disciples are going to be transformed by this experience. Now, you remember the context a little bit uh, Jesus has told Peter and the apostles what is going to happen to him, and Peter rebukes him for it, and they get in this bit of an argument. Peter rebukes Jesus, Jesus rebukes Peter, and if we pick up the story in chapter 8, verses 36 to 38, Mark 8, 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. The Son of Man will be also ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. John Grasmick writes, the Messiah, the suffering Messiah, had important 
implications for those who are going to follow him. So the 12, precisely the 11, are hearing this message. Peter, as spokesperson, is saying, we don't like this, I don't like this. And Christ is warning them, discipleship is not easy. Discipleship is going to require something of you. And it may not be super extreme, but Christ's language in that context is, is pretty strong. And so now they're on their heels. It's, it's a little bit of an upbraiding. But in chapter 9, especially verse 2, we're going to see this table turn where Christ is going to encourage these guys in an extraordinary, remarkable way. They're going to see a glimpse of glory. Peter, James, and John will see something no one else has ever seen before, and you and I get to read about it. They're going to watch Christ's transformation, his transfiguration. Look at Mark 9, verse 1. Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And we talked in the past about that phrase, truly I say to you, being an authoritative word. You can count on this. Let me explain something to you. You can bank on this. I'm telling you something. Not that all of Christ's words don't have that weight, but this phrase is interesting in the way the Messiah uses it, truly, truly sometimes in the gospel. I'm going to tell you something. Some of you will not taste death. In idiom, you're not going to die physically until you've seen the kingdom of God. Now, there are lots of opinions on what this phrase might mean, and I'm a stickler for context. I always want to know what's going on in the context of the book and the author. I think he's talking to this group of people, the standouts are Peter, James, and John, as we'll see in a moment. He's saying, some of you are not going to die until you see something otherworldly. And you're going to see a glimpse of that. So I think he's teeing up what they're going to witness. Obviously, the message they've heard, discipleship is tough. This is going to be hard for you. Now, let me give you a glimpse of glory. Let me tell you what's ahead if you understand this process of you being transformed into what you are not. The transfiguration proper then, verses 2 through 8. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garment became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. It's the second time in Mark's gospel he's taken Peter, James, and John off to a special event, we might call it. They're going to witness this transfiguration. It's a high mountain. Might, might be Mount Tabor, might be Mount Hermon most likely in the area of Caesarea Philippi. There are people that claim to know the exact location. I'm not quite so sure. In Luke chapter 9, verse 29, we have an interesting record where Jesus is praying that Mark does not record. Verse 2, the second phrase, he's transfigured before them. Metamorpho, metamorphosis in English. There's a physical change in his being. The miracle of the transformation is from an earthly form to a supraterrestrial, writes New Testament scholar Johannes Beam. There's this transformation. He's completely different. He's the same, but there's something that's unexplicable about what's happening to him. 
It's noted by the radiance of the garments. Now, I don't want to get too tedious with grammar, but something I want you to see here. This is passive. Jesus was transfigured. He did not transfigure himself. This is important. Something happens when Moses and Elijah appear, and it happens from above. And so by implication, God the Father is the one who is transforming, transfiguring Jesus. He's making him change visibly in such a spectacular way that others, Peter, James, and John, can witness and see this change. Now, a couple of times in your Bible, I want to show you two passages, Mark, uh, in Romans chapter 2 and 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And these two passages use the same term. And I want you to see how the, we understand meaning by how a term is used, right? So let's see how this term is used to understand how this transfiguration is a transformation for you and me as well. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, same word, by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul says there's a way of being transformed. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul again writes, but we all with unveiled face, and this is a, a hint to Moses who came off the mount 40 days, 40 nights, and he shined because of his exposure to Jesus Christ, the theophany on that mountain, and the radiance of Christ, we might say, etched over on him, and he had to cover himself, remember, because it, it freaked people out, it terrified them. So now the veil is taken away. With unveiled face, beholding as it, in a mirror the glory of God. So this transformation is now not hidden, but you can see that glory in, like in a mirror. Look in a mirror. Wow, look at this glory coming out of the Lord. Are being transformed, Paul continues, into the same image from glory to glory. Now Jesus is literally the same, but he's dramatically different. His physical body has been transformed. His garments are a radiant white. The word radiant means the, the light coming off the stars in the Bible or a piece of polished metal. The word for the white garments being exceedingly bright, those of you in the medical community might appreciate leukos is the word. Leukocytes, white blood cells. Leukos can mean white or clear. That's where we get it in the medical language. So this whole idea of it's, it's whiter than white. It's dazzling. It's radiant like the stars. It's reflecting like polished metal. The God, the Father, has given them a lavish, extraordinary, otherworldly glimpse into Jesus and these two with him, Elijah and Moses, appear with him. And they're talking to him, verse 4. Now Mark doesn't tell us what they're talking about. It's cryptic. Luke helps a little bit in chapter 9, verse 11. He says they were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. We don't want to overread that, but they're talking about his death and that is in front of him. He's going to go die in Jerusalem. So that's the only insight we have on what Elijah and Moses are saying to Jesus in this conversation. Uh, it's a picture of his destiny. It's a picture of what lays in front of him, lies in front of him. Now, why Moses and Elijah? Now, Moses is the one that God gave the law to. Moses spoke to God face to face, the scripture says, unlike anyone else. That's why the Jews so revere him. Elijah, as it is, is considered the greatest prophet because of the miracles that he conducted and performed at his hands. And so we have these bookends of the law and the prophets. So the transfiguration is a glimpse of the glory and grandeur of God the Father exemplified the law that came long ago. The prophets who all talked about, and let's just say he's in the middle, more than likely, Jesus 
who's the one who's being transformed, transfigured before their eyes. Do you see who this Jesus is? Do you, Peter, James, and John, who've been with him almost three now, do you understand who he is? He's not Moses. He's not Elijah. He's something far more than that. Verse 5, Peter, the, it's really a question. He's, it's stated in our English a little bit cumbersome, but he's asking Jesus a question. Is it okay if we build three tabernacles, booths, or tent? And this may have a tell to the Feast of Tabernacles. My suspicion is that based on what we know about Peter's exchange with Jesus just six days or seven days earlier, he's still probably licking his wounds a little bit, and he'd rather stay there and hang out. This is a lot better than that suffering part. This is a lot more fun than you know, what's going to happen if you go and leave us. In fact, look again at Mark 8 for just a moment, verse 31. Perhaps this was on Peter's mind. He began to teach them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And this is where Peter gets pretty exercised rebuking Jesus. So now we've got this little different picture. We've got this epiphany, this Shekinah, this glory going on. There's Moses, there's Elijah, there's Jesus. They're illumined. This is otherworldly. Let's stay here a while. Now again, I don't want to be too hard on Peter, but I always love the phrase, having nothing to say, he said something. And I feel that way a lot, so I identify with Peter, and I probably would have said much more, many more foolish things than Peter does. Graham Scroggie writes, Peter wanted the mountain without the valley. He wanted the prize without the cost. Notice the phrase, for they were terrified. I think most of us probably missed this when we read the Transfiguration account. We see the, the nomenclature, the language of this incredible happening, this transfiguration, this metamorpheo. He's, he's substantially different. Moses and Elijah show up. How'd that happen? They're terrified. So keep that in the perspective of what he's saying. So this is not a birthday party celebration. This isn't a let's have the Feast of Tabernacles because it's a good thing to do. He's, he's afraid. Verse 7, then a cloud formed overshadowing them as if the fear wasn't enough. Now we have this ominous cloud. The cloud is a fascinating study. In Matthew 17, 5, it says, while Peter was still talking, the cloud shows up. So what do we know about the cloud in the Old Testament? It's a cover by day from heat. It's warmth by night. The cloud's also the overwhelming terror of God when it comes on Mount Sinai and people freak out and run away. The cloud is an epiphany appearance of the presence of God. It's not God. It's an appearance of the presence of God, and it freaks people out. So they're already terrified. There's this radiance coming out of them that no launderer could make the garments that bright and white. And now a cloud comes over. Think of what's happened. We can't know for sure, but if that radiance is coming out 360 and now you've got a cloud coming over it, it's going to suppress that, that light down even further. They're already afraid. In the language, it overshadows them. It's a storm coming. This isn't like, oh, little clouds and harps and birds. You know, It's a nice cloudy day. This is an ominous thing they're witnessing. They're already afraid when the language piles on. Now, the voice is a beautiful stroke from Mark's pen, and I want you to see something. It'll take a little of your thinking hat. Mark chapter 111 and Mark chapter 9-7 are very important passages, and they hinge together something that I want you to see. Mark 111 is when the voice comes out from heaven and says to Jesus, you are my son, my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. 
and we have the Trinitarian directive there. We have the Father, the voice, the Spirit, and Christ there. In chapter 9, verse 7, we have the voice again, but notice the voice is directed to Peter, James, and Don. He says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. It's a very simple change. It's a very significant change. The imperative in this passage is listen to him. In 111, he's identified. He comes out. Who is this Jesus? And the spirit descends. The voice comes out of the cloud. This is, you are my beloved son, and you I'm well pleased. And people heard that. But now the directive changed. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Just a couple of word difference, but it's very intentional, not only because God said it, but the way Mark records these two passages. One is the announcement and the identification of Jesus Christ. The second is, do you disciples know who he is? Are you yet seeing him clearly? Do you understand this Jesus? We sang wonderful songs today about who this Jesus is. What a wonderful Savior he is. There's no one like him. No one else like him. Do you, do I, did those three see him for who he really was? And the overarching verbal force of these words is listen to him. Listen to him. And verse 8, all at once they looked up and they saw no one with them anymore except Jesus. The transfiguration ends as abruptly as it begins. There's no curtain call. They're now alone with Jesus. He's back to his, his lowly self. His tunic, his cloak, probably dust from the road. And these three eyewitnesses got a glimpse of his majesty. Now, let's go forward 28 to 30 years in the future. Peter will write two letters. We call them First and Second Peter, the way we number them. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, we have what I would call one of the most key passages to understand. The, the way, one of the ways we trust the Bible, because it's written over different time periods by different authors in different geographic locations, is how it agrees with each other. This is called higher criticism of the Bible. How does the Bible agree? So some 29 to 30, 20, 30 years later, Peter writes this. 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw him. Now look carefully. For when he received the honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made, notice, to him. You see it? To him by the majestic glory. He's talking about Mark 1.11. He's talking about the first time the voice came. The utterance was made to Jesus, and then he continues, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then notice, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were on the holy mountain. So he differentiates in that one sentence when Jesus came on board and he's being inaugurated and identified as the very son of God, the God-man. We, we heard that, but we saw it when we saw the transfiguration. It's one thing to hear it come out of a cloud. That's, pretty, that's a superlative. When you hear it out of a cloud and you see an Elijah and a Moses there and this Shekinah epiphany transfiguration happening and the directive says, listen to him. And 28, 29, 30 years later, Peter captures this in a different place, a different time. He writes this letter. Scholars look at this as one of the strongest evidences of the scripture agreeing with this. That we call it historicity. Was it true? Did it historically happen? put it in modern language, it ain't fake news, guys. This is the real deal. Peter says, I was there. 
Peter, James, and John. We saw these things. We heard these things. We didn't make this up. It wasn't some lore we came up with. We saw it. We heard it. We were there. We were eyewitnesses of his glory. And interesting upon interesting, he's writing that to people that are exiles. We call them refugees because they're being persecuted for following Christ. They have to run away. And that's where the letter goes as it circulates in Peter's time. Well, the text continues with two issues, the rising from the dead and who and what is this Elijah. Verse 9, as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement discussing with one another what does rising from the dead, what, what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man, so Jesus asking the question, that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you, Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Verse 2, 9-2, they, he brought them up to the mountain. Up on the mountain, the cloud comes down, and the voice speaks to them, paralleling Mark 1.11. And this, now, we're coming down off the mountain, and the questions become evident as they're asking him. So both experiences, they went up, cloud comes down, and the voice comes down. Now Mark's movement, we're coming down off this mountain. I continue to urge you when you read Mark, watch his verbal movement immediately, up, down, right away. And next day, he moves the text quickly. They heard him explain something, but they didn't comprehend it. And so they ask a question about Elijah. Now, the question is, is, is a bit loaded, um, because first of all, they want to know, um, Jesus says, you can't talk about this. By the way, this is the last time Jesus will tell them in, in Mark, don't talk about anything. We've seen the admonition several times when he performs a miracle or does something, don't tell anybody. This is the last time he says it, and he puts a qualifier on it until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Then you can talk about it because they're going to be transformed after the resurrection. So what's going on here is that this Elijah figure, and they're, they're talking among themselves. Mark is saying here, in, in, the, in the clearest way he can say, they're really unclear. They don't know what they don't know. And they're talking about Elijah. They're talking about what's it mean to rise from the dead. They're confused because they've not yet seen the whole picture. So we have two statements about Elijah from Jesus' mouth. Elijah is coming first. Elijah's already come. Why are they asking about Elijah? Notice very carefully in verse 12, uh, verse 11, they asked him, why is it the scribes say Elijah comes first? So let's not get too down the weeds here, but there were scribal teachings, just like today, churches teach different things. In the first century, rabbinics taught different things, and they would say something about Elijah's role in something. They're not quoting the passage we're going to look at in a moment, Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. But what they're saying is, we've heard scribes talk about this. And they're scratching their head with Elijah. They get Moses in some extent, but they don't understand why Elijah shows up, what that significance means, is significant about that experience. So Jesus says two things. Elijah is coming first, and Elijah has come. Now you've got to put on your thinking cap a little bit. When John the Baptist came on the scene, what did some say about him? He was Elijah. This conversation even gets in Herod's ear. It's Elijah, because he's doing things that Elijah did. Elijah was arguably the last big-time prophet because of the miracles he performs. Who is John the Baptist? 
He's the last Old Testament prophet and the first and last New Testament prophet. Because the next one will be the prophet, priest, and king, Jesus. So John serves that intertestamental bridge between the last showcased prophet, Elijah, now coming into John the Baptist. So there's a double meaning that Elijah plays a role that John the Baptist picks up and follows. So this is where I think Christ is going. Elijah is coming first, and John came, and he preached, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Change your way. Come out to the mikvah. Be baptized, because your king is coming. And then, of course, after he identifies Christ, he follows him, his obedience, and he baptizes Jesus. Mark 1.11, Matthew 3, all these events occur. Then he diminishes, and we hear nothing left more about John, just like Elijah fades off. It's a double fulfillment of a kind. Look at Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So that's Christ's addendum on the Malachi figure, uh, the, the Elijah figure. Well, let's see if we can put this into focus and make a so what application out of this, this cumbersome passage in some ways. And let me just suggest to you that for the disciples to understand Jesus, they had to see him clearly before they're going to listen to him fully. They had to see him clearly before they're going to listen to him fully. They didn't understand who he was. They didn't understand things he said. Things he said confused them. They saw what happened in 111 when he's baptized by the Holy Spirit. They saw a transfiguration. They still don't see him clearly. And until they see him clearly, they're not going to understand him fully. And that applies to you and me just the same. Because we identify with Christ based on certain experiences in our life. We, have, we, we like the Jesus we like and love. When Jesus is hard or when Jesus steps on our mail, we don't like it so much. And so if we're not seeing him clearly, we're not listening to him fully. Until you and I understand who this Jesus is, you and I will not listen to him. We will not follow him. We won't be the kind of sons and daughters he wants us to be. Following Christ is inseparable from listening to him. We can talk about experiences. We can talk about things that line up in our lives. We can talk about how God's blessed us. All that's wonderful and good and healthy and important. If you're not listening to him, you're not following him. And that's why we go back on our Christian life where we grew exponentially and we stalled out. We were routine. We got apathetic. We didn't look at it anymore. Eh, I'm not interested. My life's too important. We're not seeing Jesus clearly, and we certainly aren't listening to him fully because we don't know who he is, or we do and we don't care, or all kinds of in-betweens. Many years ago, uh, Cindy and I, when I, the first church I served, we were 28 years old and change and didn't know what we didn't know. And um, we had a small group, and there was a woman in this group that was a widow. Her name is Elaine Beekman. She's with the Lord now. But Elaine Beekman is a legend in the Wycliffe translating world. She and her husband, John, were pioneers. They went into uh, deep Mexico, and they were some of the first to take a non-written language to develop a grammar, a vocabulary, a grammar, and write in another script, if you will, a mother tongue language that had never had a written form. And uh, a number of these Wycliffe missionaries, I mean, they were truly pioneers to do this. And much of Wycliffe and New Tribes Missions work is built on the, the groundwork that guys like uh, the Beekmans did. 
Well, John is a legend in the Wycliffe community. Elaine had retired, semi-retired, still she lived there near the church we served and was part of this church. So she's in our group, and um, if, if you've been around just like, I don't want to say this, but I don't know how to say it better, super godly people, you know, I hate to qualify, but you know, this super god. I mean, Elaine was super godly. She was kind, never spoke an ill word. Uh, she wasn't toxic, like legalistic. She was, she was one of these women you met and you were like, wow, she is like the most amazing person I've ever you met. You know people like that? They put your Christianity, they put my Christianity to shame. And um, she never said anything bad about anyone. Her, her son, Tom Beekman, was a friend. And he said, Michael, the worst thing I've ever heard mom said was, oh, hat pins and handkerchiefs. <laughs> that's, that's cuss words when you're that godly, you know, hat pins and handkerchiefs. And uh, she was just this extraordinarily godly woman. And as we got to know her, I asked her one time, I said, Lane, when you look back on your Christian life, what was it that you would say was foundational to your faith? And I, I forget if she said she was seven or in seventh grade, my, my mind. But she told me, someone challenged me to memorize Romans 12, and I memorized it, and I've been trying to live Romans 12 the rest of my life. So Cindy and I promptly began memorizing Romans 12, thinking maybe one day we'll be like Elaine. So I want to go back to Romans 12 and show you something that we ran over quickly. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, Paul's pleading with them, by the mercy of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. And as some wag has observed, the problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar. To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I'm, I'm begging you, we might paraphrase, with all I can beg you, will you present your life as an ongoing sacrifice as your spiritual service of worship? Now, watch how he motivates this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the same grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly than you ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And on it goes. That passage is worth a lifetime of study. Paul's begging the Roman believer, by God's mercy, do you understand who this Jesus is? And the way you and I are transformed is what? Renewing your mind. Renewing your mind. Our experiences are important. Our relationships are important. All the things we do in life are important. Renewing your mind is where transformation begins. Not to think as you ought to think. Not to think higher of yourself. And I would put implicitly, or to think lower of yourself. Have a sobriety about who you are. Don't think like you once thought, think like you need to think, and you need to renew your mind. God gave you a brain. When you come to Christ, you use that brain, hopefully. And you and I need to recalibrate our thinking. Some of us are old enough in this room to have owned and remember slide projectors that had a carousel tray on them, right? And then, as you went through the slides, right? And if you had money, you had two and you had a dissolve unit, remember that? That was super high tech in those days, baby. Missionaries and vacationers would come home with slides and show you 18,000 slides of their life, you know, and well, PowerPoint did away with all that, and now new technology, we don't need it anymore. But I want you to think of that slide carousel with those pictures in there of your life and experience in childhood and Christianity. And when you came to Christ, the home you were raised in, what you believed, what you know, 
uh, vivid experiences that we all can remember of third grade or 10th grade or high school or whatever that's vivid to us. And we can go through, and we can see those images precisely, the bicycle, the teacher, the play, the first time we performed, when we graduated high school or college, we got our law degree, walked past the bar, finished med school, our children, our marriages, our divorces, we can see those images. There, and that slide tray just goes around and around and around. To renew your mind, you've got to take some of those slides out of that tray, and you've got to put some new ones in. You have to think, not as you used to think, but Paul says, think, what is, look at it again. Don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so you may prove what the will of God is. You've got to think differently. So I want to put a new slide in there that I'm forgiven, a new slide in there that I'm loved. A new slide that nothing I can do will change God's love for me. A slide that says, don't listen to the world. A slide that says, don't let the world teach you theology. I don't know. You got to put new slides in that tray. And then you got to watch it over and over and over and over and over and over again. What was the command to the disciples? From God, listen to him. You don't see him clearly now in his transfigured state. You're not going to get it. That's not what he said. He said, listen to him. Ongoing imperative command. Listen to him. You will not see him clearly. You will not listen to him fully. If you begin to see him clearly, you'll begin to listen to him more fully. And as, as simple and as academic as it is, this is how you listen. No shortcut, no substitute. I hope you know me. I don't want to shame you. I don't make you feel bad. I don't hurt your feelings. You're not renewing your mind unless you're in this book. Because you got the old slide tray with all the wrong information. It may be fine, neutral information, but it's not renewing your mind. You're going to have to put new information in that slide tray. You're going to have to reformat the hard drive with new data. So that you go to that default, I'm to be the man God wants me to be, the husband he wants me to be, the father, the wife, the woman, the teen, the single person, the fill in the blank. And you've got to put the right data in there. That's how you renew your mind. Isn't it interesting? He didn't say you're going to be all fine, hunky, and dory when you're saved. Discipleship requires something of us. The good thing is we all got gray matter between these temples. Most of us, haven't, I haven't used probably 2% of mine. How much have you used of yours? A lot there. Renewing our mind. If you and I want to see him clearly, you've got to listen to him fully. If you listen to him compartmentally, you're not seeing this Jesus for who he is. And don't miss, they were terrified when they saw him clearly. May have been a little good motivation to listen to him completely. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are for us. You are not mad or discouraged with us. You don't kick the dirt on heaven's floor when we sin and get off track. You care, you love, you minister to us in ways we too often miss. Remind us that we are yours, not our own. That what we have is yours. We're stewards. That how we live this life is a reflection on what you've given us. And help us all to present ourselves as that living sacrifice 
a willing daily obligation that says yes to you and your word and no to sin and self. Help us by your spirit who indwells us and empowers us. Thanks that you hear our prayer. Help us to see you clearly and listen to you fully. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.